Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Thank you for joining today. This is our group learning program where we study the words of the Buddha and helping you to get to enlightenment. We use this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, as our source text for this program. This is a seven-month program where we study on Sundays each individual chapter in the book, and today we're on chapter 19. And then once we get to the end, we actually restart the whole program from the beginning again. But students can join at any time and start to learn with us. So I'd like to welcome all of you to today's class. Today's topic in chapter 19 is titled The Difficult Human Existence, Sickness, Aging, and Death. This is where you learn a little bit about the life story of the Buddha, and you understand what motivated him in order to go on this journey to actually attain enlightenment. And you start to understand some of the most difficult challenges that human beings experience, which are sickness, aging, and death. These are the three things that are very, very challenging for a human being to face and to experience, particularly in the unenlightened state. Once the mind's enlightened, these things aren't difficult at all. They're deeply understood. But in the unenlightened state, sickness, aging, and death is quite a challenge. So I'm going to be explaining to you a bit about Gautama Buddha's life story in today's class and giving you kind of an overview of what that was like. And then we'll go into discussing sickness, aging, and death and how to actually deal with this as an individual who's on the path to enlightenment and aspiring to get to the point where these things no longer shake up the mind. As we go in our class today, you're always welcome to ask questions. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. So Gautama Buddha's life story really starts out with his birth, is you know, being born into a royal family. His mom and his dad were part of a royal family. His dad was the king, his mom was the queen, and at his birth, his mom had a very difficult time in order to deliver him. During the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, who at this point is Siddhartha Gautama, he's not yet an actual Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama was obviously in his mom's stomach, and as she is nearing closer to the point where it's time to deliver the baby, it was customary during her lifetime to go back to her homeland and actually deliver the baby at her parents' home. So they organize a caravan and she makes her way back towards her homeland where her parents live. And on the way, she goes into labor and they stop the caravan and she gets out of the caravan and goes over to a tree and reaches up and grabs onto a branch of a tree. And through this difficult labor, 
the baby couldn't come out through the normal birthing canal. So instead he breaks through the stomach, the side of the stomach. Today we would have done a C-section in order to deliver the child. But during that time, 2,500 years ago, there wasn't the technology to do a C-section. So his mother ends up dying about seven days later after his birth. And as also was customary during this time frame is that if the mother died during birth or shortly thereafter, your sister would adopt your children and essentially raise them as their mother. So his mother, biological mother, dies seven days after his birth, but then the mother who raises him is actually his aunt. And during the birth of Gautama Buddha, it's said in the Pali Canon and other places that Gautama Buddha started to walk as soon as he came out of his mom's stomach, he took seven steps, and lotus flowers were blossoming under his feet, and he declared in speech that this will be my last birth. I think that this part of the story is probably an embellishment of the story, because if this part was actually true, that you had a child and they immediately walked and they had lotus flowers blossoming under their feet and they could speak right away, you would kind of know what's going to happen with this child most likely. But the next part of the story is where Siddhartha Gautama's father, the king, ends up summoning advisors to come tell him what his son was going to become. So again, if you have a child that has these miracles occurring at birth, you wouldn't need to really have other people tell you what this child is going to become. You would pretty much know. But he had 108 advisors come and share with him what his son was going to become during his life. This was kind of a standard practice during that time frame. And 107 of those advisors told his father that his son was going to be this great monarch who was going to expand his territory and rule over this kingdom. And of course, his father really enjoyed hearing that, you know, that's my boy. Yeah, he's going to rule over my kingdom and expand the territory. But there was this one advisor, the 108th advisor, who comes in very respectfully and apologizes to the king and tells the king that unfortunately these other advisors were not really speaking what was really going to truly happen. That instead what was actually going to happen is that his son was going to be this great spiritual leader. He was going to indeed be a leader but a spiritual leader and his father didn't like this. So because of the risk of his son potentially becoming a spiritual leader, he decides to sequester Siddhartha Gautama into the palace for his entire life and not let him go outside the palace and get involved in worldly affairs and be interested in what's going on in the kingdom in terms of being interested to be some type of spiritual leader. So he was kind of wooed into the way of being a monarch. He was given you know, lots of royal riches, of course, wonderful food, amazing entertainment, great fabrics in his clothes, beautiful women bathing him, you know, all the things that a monarch could be able to afford. He was given these things as a way to kind of woo him into the ways of being a monarch because he wouldn't be able to acquire these same things in any other way. So his father felt that doing this would kind of convince him to be a monarch. And about the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama realizes that he's about to become the king because during the lifetime of Siddhartha Gautama, you didn't wait until your father died before you became the king, but instead, at the age of 30, you would become the king and your dad would essentially retire. 
and he would still be around to kind of guide you and help you to become a king. So at the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama realized he was about to become the king, but yet he had never been outside in the kingdom, so he didn't know what he was going to be essentially the ruler of. So against his father's wishes and without his father's knowledge, he ends up going outside the palace and he takes his royal attendant with him, this trusted attendant who had been with him you know, pretty much his whole life. And they go outside the palace and he makes these four observations. These are called the four observations. He observes this sickly person, this aging person, a dead corpse, and he observes a spiritual seeker, someone who's interested in understanding life better. And when he sees this sickly person, he has to turn to his attendant and ask his attendant, what is that? Because he didn't know what was going on and why this person was sick and what the people around them were doing because the people around this person, you know, where they were very discontent, they were sad and frustrated that this person was sickly. So his attendant had to explain to him that this was a sickly person and the people around them were frustrated and upset about this. And then he sees this aging person, kind of an older, decrepit person with challenges walking and aches and pains and really frustrated and feeling miserable. Siddhartha Gautama had to ask his attendant, you know, what is this? And he's like, oh, that's what happens to you as you go forward in life. You know, you lose this youthfulness and you're going to end up becoming more and more aged like this. And Siddhartha Gautama saw all this discontentedness essentially around this person. And then when he saw the corpse, Siddhartha Gautama was like, what is that? You know, he had to ask, you know, what is that? He didn't know what that was. He didn't realize that, you know, this life was going to get to a point where a human being actually dies. And around the dead corpse, there were people who were grieving and having misery and very upset. And he observed these things happening in the kingdom. And then he saw this aesthetic and he saw this person who was a person who was a spiritual seeker looking to understand life. And what Siddhartha Gautama realizes is that he feels like the kingdom is full of all this misery and all this despair, which he hadn't been exposed to in his early life. Up to age 29, he was being wooed into the ways of being a monarch, and he didn't see these things, that people were always treating him very well, and he didn't know that there was all this misery in the kingdom. So he decides that he would like to do that spiritual seeker stuff. He would like to essentially become a monk. He would like to give up the worldly possessions and go out and experience life and try to figure out the answers to these problems that he saw with sickness, aging, and death, and all this discontentedness that was occurring around the people that were experiencing sickness, aging, and death. He didn't understand what was causing all of this at the time because he was not yet enlightened. He was not yet a Buddha. His mind was still unawakened. He was still unenlightened. But he understood enough that when he decided that he was going to leave the palace, he knew that if he went to his wife and talked to her and hugged her and kissed her and said goodbye, or they had an infant at the time, so his young son was just an infant. And if he went to his infant and hugged and kissed and said goodbye to his son that perhaps he wouldn't actually leave. So he just looks in on them 
at nighttime and sees them sleeping and he decides to leave the palace and once again he doesn't understand you know craving desire attachment so when he leaves he takes with him his favorite horse he takes his royal attendant with him and they leave from the royal palace and as he journeys away farther and farther from the palace he starts shedding things and one of the things that he sheds is he lets his horse go he asks his attendant to leave you know letting him know that he was a very good attendant and asked him to go about his life and then he decides to cut off his hair during the lifetime of siddhartha gotama the way that people in the kingdom knew that you were part of the royal family is that you had this long flowing beautiful hair because nowadays if we were interested in knowing who's the king or the queen we would just have pictures and people know who's the king or the queen by pictures and photographs but during that time that technology didn't exist so the way that people would know that you're part of the royal family is you would have this long beautiful flowing hair because it would only be the royal family that would have the time and the resources to be able to care for this hair you know, us commoners who are out in the fields laboring away or working in our shops, we wouldn't be able to have this long flowing hair because it would get all knotted and tangled and dirty. So we needed to have our hair shorter so that we could more readily care for it when we were doing all these laborious jobs. But the royal family could sit around with this long hair. They didn't really have as many things to do. They could have workers who were brushing their hair washing their hair caring for it so if you had really long beautiful flowing hair people knew that you were part of the royal family so by Siddhartha Gautama cutting off his hair this is a way of essentially saying you know to himself and, and making the commitment that I'm never going back because there would never be a time where people in the kingdom would believe that he was a member of the royal family without having that long beautiful hair that it took him 29 years to grow. We also know that this helps us to realize non-self by eliminating the hair as well. But during that time he didn't necessarily know what that was. He was just cutting off his hair to say, you know, I'm never going back to be part of the royal family ever again. So he goes on this journey to be able to experience enlightenment. And all he was interested in doing is really solving his own discontent mind and trying to understand the sickness, aging, and death and why people continue to experience these things and why they were grieving and having misery around those experiences. So he ends up learning with two different teachers. He goes to the first teacher and he studies with this person for about a year. And he gets all the way to the point where this teacher declares him to be a master teacher. He says that, you know, this student, Siddhartha Gautama, has mastered my teachings in this year and he's now considered to be a master teacher. But Siddhartha Gautama knew that his mind wasn't any better condition that it was when he left the palace, that he hadn't experienced enlightenment because he was still experiencing discontentedness of mind. So he goes to a second teacher and he studies with this teacher all the way through and to the point where this teacher also declares him to be a master teacher after just one year. And Siddhartha Gautama observed with his mind that he was not yet enlightened because he was still experiencing discontentedness. The main reason why is because what he was learning from these two teachers was things that were disparaging the body. They were teaching practices like starving the body, hanging yourself upside down from trees, 
laying on beds of nails, piercing the body with metal implements. And the thought at the time was that if you could cause physical pain to the body and you can overcome that physical pain with the mind, then you would be enlightened. And there were many different teachers around that area of the world that were claiming that they had attained enlightenment and they knew how to do it. So Siddhartha Gautama was just trying to solve his discontent mind, but he realized after two years of study that his mind wasn't in any better shape after having studied and mastered these teachings versus when he was in the palace. So he goes out on his own and he goes into the forest to try to discover the teachings that will help him to solve the the problems in his mind. And when he's in the forest, he doesn't know anything other than what he'd already been taught. So he's still continuing to practice those same things and he's starving himself. If you ever see any statues of the Buddha where his ribs are sunken in, his stomach is sunken in, you can see the facial bones and the bones protruding at the joints. This is depicting that time when he was in the forest starving himself. And he gets to the point where he's basically on the doorstep of death. He's on the brink of death. And there's this little girl and this mom who comes along and offers him some rice to eat. And he reluctantly accepts this rice because in that moment he realizes that if he allows the physical body to die, then he can't train the mind because there would be physical death and the mind would no longer be here in this existence to be able to be trained. So he realized that his life in the palace, having all these sensual pleasures and having everything that he could imagine, that wasn't going to lead to enlightenment. But also this starving the body and disparaging the body and causing all this physical pain, that wasn't going to lead to enlightenment either. So he starts to understand this middle way that he can start trying to work on this middle way where he does eat but he just doesn't gorge himself and have all these central pleasures but he's also not starving himself either so he eventually gets to the point where he decides to just only eat one meal a day so that the body can get some nourishment but he's not gorging on the food and then slowly but surely over that remaining four-year period a total of six years he discovers the teaching slowly but surely that leads to his own enlightenment and how to actually get to enlightenment. And when he attains enlightenment, he knows he's attained enlightenment because his mind is completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. He knows what it felt like to experience anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, jealousy, resentment, all these other feelings that he had experienced in the past, he knew what those things felt like. So now with the enlightened mind, he knew that he discovered this enlightened mind and how to actually get to enlightenment. But he knew his teachings were very different than what other people were teaching at the time. So he wasn't quite sure whether he was going to share his teachings with the world or not. So for about seven weeks, he spends time around this tree contemplating whether or not he should actually share these teachings with others or not, or whether he should go back to the royal palace. So over seven weeks of contemplating of what he should do, he eventually decides that he's going to now share these teachings with others. So he goes back towards the area where he was studying with those two teachers, and he encounters four of his former classmates and one of his previous teachers, these five aesthetics that were still practicing those harsh aesthetic practices that they were practicing before. 
And when they see Siddhartha Gautama coming, who's now enlightened and who's going to be a Buddha, they don't recognize that he's enlightened. And they actually start laughing at him and joking him and mocking him and thinking that he had given up his pursuit to enlightenment because here they are with all of these, you know, sunken in stomachs and depleted ribs and seeing the bones protruding from their joints and so forth. And here comes this person who has meat on their bones because in their mind, what it meant to get to enlightenment is to deprive the body of things. But yet they saw this person with meat on their bones and they thought that he had given up. So they're kind of mocking him and joking him. And what he does is he sits down and he takes his hand and he touches the earth and it calls these animals from the animal kingdom, different animals, you know, bears and deer and squirrels and all these different animals come to where he's at. Essentially, he performs this first miracle. And this is enough to convince those five people to sit down and listen to what he has to say. And then from there, he delivers his very first discourse. His very first discourse is the Four Noble Truths. This is where he explains the problem in the unenlightened mind, the cause, the elimination, and the complete path forward of how to actually eliminate discontentedness. Because remember, these five people were doing all kinds of different things, like hanging themselves upside down from trees and starving themselves and so forth. So in four simple statements, Gautama Buddha explains what the problem is with discontentedness. He explains the cause being craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, the mind's craving permanence. And then he explains that you can eliminate that discontentedness through eliminating the craving, desire, attachment. And the way to achieve that is through learning and practicing the Eightfold Path. And he explains this to them in detail in such a way that it's not based on belief, that he was sharing teachings with them that they could then reflect on and independently verify the truth for themselves. And they could see the truth in it. And they had that breakthrough to understand that he indeed discovered the truth of why the mind experiences discontent feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, and others. So having this breakthrough of understanding the Four Noble Truths, they realized that he was actually enlightened and he had discovered the truth and they become essentially his first students. And then as time goes on and he shares the teachings, he no longer performs miracles because a Buddha doesn't need to perform constant miracles to convince people of who he is because his teachings are independently verifiable. So if somebody has an interest to learn and understand the teachings, they can sit down and talk with an enlightened person, and then gradually that person can walk them through to understanding what the teachings are that actually lead to enlightenment, and they can independently see the truth for themselves. A Buddha doesn't need to perform a bunch of miracles to convince people who they are. And in fact, it actually helps a Buddha that people don't necessarily know who they are because then he can observe the condition of their mind more readily. So as he's teaching, more and more people come to join him. In fact, there's many different teachers who are teaching that it's their teachings that lead to enlightenment. And they would sometimes come and talk with the Buddha. 
and asking him questions and they would bring their students along with them. And sometimes in this conversation, the other teacher would get angry and frustrated and get up and leave because what the Buddha was sharing was so different than what they were sharing. And in that moment, that teacher's students knew that their teacher wasn't enlightened because they got frustrated and angry and got up and left. So those students would then become students of the Buddha. And then sometimes the conversation went so well that this other teacher recognized that they weren't enlightened. And in fact, the Buddha was enlightened. And then they would become students of the Buddha and bring their students along with them. But even still, all the way to the end of Gautama Buddha's life, there were other people who were teaching other teachings that were claiming that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment and not the Buddha's. So his teaching continues to the point where he has more and more and more students coming to learn with him and countless people get to enlightenment during his lifetime. And more and more people started understanding that he was in fact a Buddha because there's three main criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. Is one, they need to discover the teachings that lead to enlightenment on their own, independently, without the help or guidance of any teachers. So even though the Buddha had those two teachers, those teachings didn't lead to enlightenment. It wasn't until the four years on his own that that's what actually led to his true enlightenment. So he discovered the teachings independently on his own that led to enlightenment. That's the first criteria. The second criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their independently discovered teachings and countless people become enlightened during their lifetime through the teachings that they discovered and that they're now sharing as a teacher. And then the third criteria is, is that once they die, that they've left the teachings in such a condition that countless more people can continue to get enlightened after their lifetime. And this is what determines that a Buddha is a Buddha, is they independently discover the teachings that lead to enlightenment, They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing the teachings and helping countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then they preserve their teachings in such a condition that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. And this is how we know that Gautama Buddha was indeed a Buddha because he meets all three of those categories, all three of those criterias. And this is also why not everybody during his lifetime was necessarily convinced that he was a Buddha because they didn't necessarily know what his teachings were because they weren't studying his teachings. But for the people that were studying and learning and understanding his teachings, they could observe that the condition of their mind was improving. And if they saw that these three criteria were being met, they knew that this individual was a Buddha because they knew what it felt like and what they were experiencing previously when they were angry and frustrated and all these other discontent feelings. And now having learned the teachings with this person and seeing the drastic improvement to the condition of their mind in such a short time frame, they knew that these teachings were very penetrating and that this person was indeed a Buddha. But it wasn't until after he died that people really truly knew that he was an actual Buddha because there they could see that all three criteria had actually been met. And then as he works his way to enlightenment, he actually discovers what is causing the discontentedness and what is causing sickness, aging, and death. He understands this sickness, aging, and death through the teachings that he discovers. 
is that he realizes that the reason why people experience sickness, aging, and death is because of this universal truth of impermanence, that it's not possible for this physical body to be permanently healthy. It's going to experience sickness. It's impossible for this physical body in this existence to not experience any sickness. And it's when the mind is craving and yearning and longing for permanent health that it becomes discontent. And then when the body's sick and the individual can't go to work and you can't see the same friends that you saw, you can't necessarily eat the same foods, the taste of the food isn't necessarily there, or the smell isn't there, then the person's more and more discontent because their mind is attached and craving these things. So as long as the mind is craving permanent health, then it's going to experience discontentedness when the body is sick, not realizing that sickness is part of this human existence. And the same thing with aging is that as the physical body ages and we start feeling aches and pains and it's a little bit more challenging for us to walk and all these other things, if the mind is craving permanent youthfulness, where the mind thinks that it should be permanently youthful, then it's going to experience discontentedness when the body is aging. And then when there's death and somebody's getting close to their own death or they experience death of people that are close to them, then the mind is going to experience discontentedness if it lacks the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence. Because if the mind is craving and yearning and longing and holding on to existence and wanting to exist in this world, then when you get close to death, your mind is going to be discontent because you're holding on to existence and you're holding on to all these material things in life, wanting these things to be permanent when the mind doesn't understand that they're impermanent. And the same thing when people around us die and the mind is grieving or it's sad, it's because the mind is craving permanence, wanting this person to be permanent. The same reason why people grieve and cry at a funeral is the same reason why they grieve and cry at a wedding, for example, is because the mind is craving permanence, wanting this son or this daughter to be with them permanently and not being willing to let go. The mind isn't willing to let go. So the mind grieves and has sadness. It wants to hold on to the son or daughter permanently. This is why you might have had parents when you went away on vacations or college or if you went away for any period of time parents can sometimes get sad or angry or frustrated when their children are leaving even though it should be a very joyful experience that they've done a great job as a parent that now the child can move on with their life and live a more independent life but instead sometimes the parents or grandparents or brothers and sisters are grieving at a wedding or when you go away to college or something like that and it's the same reason why the mind is grieving at death is because the mind's craving permanence so this sickness, aging, and death is only occurring because of this universal truth of impermanence, but it's also occurring because there's birth. As long as there's birth, there's going to be sickness, aging, and death. As long as a being is born into the world, because this being has arisen, it's going to change and it's going to fade away. It's not permanent. So you can't experience permanent health permanent youthfulness and permanent life 
because there's birth, there's going to be sickness, aging, and death. So what the Buddha discovers as part of his awakening to enlightenment is not only the reason why we experience sickness, aging, and death in terms of the universal truth of impermanence, not only discovering why we experience discontentedness in the unenlightened state when we're sick, when we're aging, and when we experience death, but he also discovered how to completely unravel all of this so that we will never again experience any sickness, aging, and death by eliminating craving, desire, attachment from the mind where the mind is no longer longing and yearning. Because as long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, not only are you going to experience discontentedness in this life, but that's also going to cause rebirth to come into the world and experience life continuously over and over and over again because the mind hasn't yet cultivated the wisdom that it needs in this life or all the previous lives in order to get to the point where it's learned what it needs to learn and it gets to enlightenment where it no longer experiences discontentedness. And because of that lack of wisdom, the mind is going to continue to have craving, it's going to continue to have anger, and therefore it's going to continue to experience rebirth because the mind has not yet eliminated these pollutions. And if there's going to be birth, there's going to be sickness, aging, and death. So by solving the problem of the discontent mind and eliminating the conditions that are causing the mind to stay trapped in the unenlightened state, not only are you solving the problem of discontentedness and getting to enlightenment in this life, but you're actually solving the problem permanently where you'll never again experience birth. So therefore you won't experience sickness, aging, and death. Because in life, while we tend to focus on the positive sides of life and we look at things in a positive way and we tend to try to do that, there's a certain amount of grief and despair and displeasure and maybe we even say misery with life and existing. You know, sure, we get to a point where we start looking at the brighter side of life. But if you look back over your life, you can see the sadness and the frustration and the anger and all the time that you've spent doing those things, where if you can get to the point where you cultivate wisdom, where you can train the mind to no longer experience those things, now you can spend the rest of this life with this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer burdened with all these discontent feelings, no longer being plagued by all this discontentedness. Because all that time that we waste being discontent and being angry at people, you know, I can remember times, you know, a week or two or three or maybe longer, you know, being angry at somebody, being miserable towards somebody because of just something simple that you might look back on now and be like, oh, that was so silly of me. So by training the mind to cultivate this wisdom, the same like the Buddha did, you can get to this mental state where the mind is liberated. It's liberated. It's free from the strong feelings that are causing the mind to continually be shaken up. And then not only do you solve it in this life, but then there won't be any further birth to continue to experience the misery of life over and over and over again. So let me pause and see what questions you guys have here. This is essentially the main content of everything that I'm going to be sharing with you today. I have one other little thing that I'm going to be sharing with you guys to kind of wrap the class up. But I'm really going to turn things over to all of you guys to be able to ask any questions that you like about Gautama Buddha's life story, 
or any aspect of his life story or his teachings or this sickness, aging, and death, if you need help to understand that and how to deal with it in your own life. So the way that you ask questions is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Yes, sir. I have a question. Was there a Buddha before uh, uh, Siddhartha? Or not Siddhartha, but uh, Gautama? Gautama? So this is the only thing that I found in the Pali Canon where I see a conflict. Everything else, there's no conflict. So with the universal truth of impermanence, you know, we can know that there is going to be something that, you know, maybe was written down that wasn't 100% accurate. There's places in the Pali Canon where it talks about multiple Buddhas and prior to Gautama. But then there's a place where the Buddha is saying that he's the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of the path to enlightenment, undeclared before me. This is what he shares. So for me, I don't see any evidence of a Buddha prior to Gautama Buddha. In fact, we know that prior to humans at a certain point, we weren't even able to communicate with each other. We didn't have spoken communication. We surely didn't have written communication. It was only at a certain period of time that human beings were able to start communicating with each other. So while there's places in the Pali Canon that talk about different Buddhas and reference different Buddhas, there's this other place where Gautama Buddha is describing that this path to enlightenment was undeclared before him. So for me, I tend to think that he was the only Buddha because I don't have any evidence in my hands of anything prior to him that existed that was from a Buddha prior to him. But there's surely people out there for good reason because it's in the Pali Canon that feel there were Buddhas before Gautama Buddha. But what I would encourage you to think about is that it really actually doesn't matter if there was one Buddha, if there was 10, if there was 100, or there was 100,000 Buddhas. Because right now in the present moment, you're in existence, you're a human being, and you have a discontent mind, and it's unenlightened, and it's a Buddhist teachings that are going to lead to your enlightenment. So by learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings and getting to enlightenment, that's the problem that we're all looking to solve, and that's what you need to do in order to eliminate this discontent mind and get to the enlightened mental state. So if there was one or there was a hundred or there was a thousand, it would be wonderful to know with a hundred percent certainty, but that information isn't going to be something that we can know with a hundred percent certainty because of this conflict in the Pali Canon. And what I tend to look for is I look for concrete evidence that I can independently verify that there was a Buddha before Gautama Buddha. And I don't have that, but I certainly have evidence that Gautama Buddha existed. And I know that he existed with 100% certainty, but these others I don't have any evidence of. So I tend to say that there weren't Buddhas prior to him. Thank you, sir. Miranda has her hand up. Thank you, Tony. Um, sir, if you could give some guidance, having this acceptance of death, this knowledge that because we're born, we die in the industry, especially that I've worked in, we see a lot of aging and sickness and death. When asked by others, how we handle death, what would be a wise way to really explain that to them? 
because it seems that it can come off maybe as uncaring to other people because we're not grieving and crying and becoming discontent when someone is in the process of passing away or has died. So. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is I don't need to grieve and cry in order to have love and care for somebody. You know, grieving and crying is not a result of love and care, but instead it's a result of craving and desire. It's the mind holding on to this person. This can be a simple way to explain it. But somebody who's nearing death, I mean, while we can share with them these kind of teachings, it's oftentimes very challenging for them to understand at that point because they've gone for so long without understanding that now potentially if they're ready to understand we can still talk to them and we can still help them if they ask us questions but what most people associate with love and care is that when somebody's injured or when somebody's sick or when somebody's dying that you should be crying and you should be upset and you should be essentially discontent that's what they associate love with because of their unknowing of true reality their ignorance or unknowing of true reality so when other people are feeling that way and they're having a certain perception about you you shouldn't feel that you need to defend yourself and you need to convince them that you do have love or care for somebody but if somebody asks you and is curious then you can just let them know you know what i shared is that you know you don't need to be upset and grieving in order to have love and care love doesn't cause grief and sadness but unfortunately people misunderstand that and it's not something that someone's going to necessarily understand in a short time frame but you should always make sure that you're not in a situation where you're feeling like you have to defend yourself and convince other people that you do love somebody because if they have the perception of that and that's the perception that they're going to cling to then there's nothing that you can do to help them let that go if they're asking you questions and they're interested to know and then you can help them to see then okay but if any point in the conversation you know they get angry or they start being uh, disgruntled or disrespectful and they're still clinging to their perceptions it's better to just walk away from it and not even feel a need to try to convince that person otherwise because they're just going to keep clinging to their perceptions this is also true in situations where people are perceiving you as being a bad person or unwholesome or someone's judging you and looking down on you you know there's been situations where i've had people think that i'm craving and i'm desiring or people think that i have ego or that i'm you know putting myself up above others and in those situations i just have no interest in trying to defend myself and try to change their perception because that's their perception and i know they're clinging to it if somebody's asking me questions about something then I can help them see more clearly. But if they're not asking questions, they're just projecting their perceptions onto me, then their mind's not open to understanding. And I'm not going to try to defend myself because there's no self to defend. If they would like to think that way, then I just let them think that way. So if somebody's looking at you around the time of death of other people and observing that you're not grieving the same as them and think that you don't love somebody, that's just their perception. It doesn't mean that it's true. And you shouldn't feel an obligation to convince people that you do love somebody. 
unless they're interested in asking you questions and trying to understand your perspective. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm, you're welcome. Yes, Teacher David. Uh, Tonka asks in Zoom, Teacher David, who was your teacher, if you don't mind me asking? I don't have any teachers. I learned everything that I share in these books and in these classes and everything that I share based on personal experience. Uh, thank you. Uh, and in Zoom, Alaska, Alaska, so did the Buddha give teachings to animals during his lifetime? No, he did not teach any animals because animals can't learn to a point to actually get to enlightenment. So a Buddha is only going to teach humans and heavenly beings. These beings can get to enlightenment. The beings in the animal realm need to be reborn into an improved existence so that they can actually learn and cultivate the mind and get to enlightenment. Okay. Uh, Jan has her hand raised. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Teacher David. Teacher David, I wonder if you could give some guidance about helping uh, friends and family members prepare for one's um, death so that they may handle it um, with as much wisdom as possible. Yeah, the best thing to do is, is train the mind to let go. You know, the mind is going to be holding on to relationships, to possessions, to so many things. This is where some people as they age, they start letting go of things, right? Like my grandmother, as she was younger, you know, she accumulated a lot of things. But then as she started aging, she started just giving things away and giving things away and giving things away, even without having understood the teachings of the Buddha. But this is the best way for someone to prepare for death is to give things away. I mean, the best time to prepare for death is, you know, six years old, 10 years old, not literally preparing for death, but by training the mind to get to enlightenment early in life like that. By the time you get to death, you'll have cultivated plenty of wisdom and death will be no issue for you whatsoever. But if somebody hasn't been learning these teachings and hasn't been training the best thing for them to do is just train the mind to let go, let go, let go. That can be challenging for someone who's gone their whole life holding on to things, but that's the best way for them to have an improved existence, you know, practicing generosity, practicing letting go. There is the ability to not only attain enlightenment during life, but attaining enlightenment at death too. It would be best to attain enlightenment during your life because then you get to spend the rest of your life enjoying the hard work and experiencing that peaceful calm serene and consent mind with joy with the focus the concentration the clarity of mind the deep memory all of those benefits throughout your life and have really rewarding personal and professional relationships but the next best option would be to experience enlightenment at death because at least at that point you're not going to experience any rebirth uh, you still would have been angry and frustrated and irritated throughout your life. But at least at death, if you attain enlightenment, then at least you're not experiencing rebirth. So the best way to potentially get to that is to train the mind to let go and not hold on to existence and not hold on to all these things that are around us, relationships, possessions, and things like that. Teacher David, would that include um, wanting to continue to help one's children or, or one's family and friends and 
I, I assume that would be a form of clinging to to life. Yeah, the mind's got to get to a point where it realizes this life is impermanent, existence is impermanent. These beings are going to continue since they're dying. These beings are are going to need to be here, and they just need to let go. And one of the things that you can do with people that are dying, I've been around, you know, uh, several people that have died at different times is whatever they say, like if they say, oh, I want to eat chocolate ice cream, just give them chocolate ice cream. If they say, oh, I want to see my mother one last time, bring the mother to come see the mother because you can extinguish craving in two different ways. One is to cut it off, let it go, completely eliminate it. The other way is to fulfill it. So if you have a family member who's literally on their deathbed or nearing close to death, if they have certain requests of things that they want, then just fulfill it. So like my wife's mother, her dying wish was to die at home. She wanted to die inside the home because that was the home of her mother. So we made sure as she got closer and closer to death that even when she went to the hospital and the doctor was like, there's nothing else we can do. We're just going to let her stay here and live out the next few days of her life. And she's going to ultimately die. And my wife talked to the medical staff at the hospital and said, you know, what we would like to do is take her home because this is the one last thing that she really would like to do is die at home. So we worked it out where mom could come home and she died at home because with that craving in the mind, if she wasn't able to do that, then there would have been rebirth. So one of the ways to help somebody who is dying is anything that they ask for, just let them get what it is that they are asking for because that's going to help them extinguish the craving. And even if they don't get to enlightenment at death, at least that's one less craving that they need to deal with in their next life. Thank you, teacher David. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Uh, thank you. Rick uh, has his hand up. Yes, thank you, teacher David, and thank you, Tony. Um, just on general principle, uh, could could you offer a few um, suggestions on how I can comfort people who are in hospice or are dying from a Buddhist perspective? When you say comfort, what do you mean by that? Well, for instance, now, of course, it's already happened, but uh, maybe five years ago, my, my grandmother found out that she had only a few months to live, so I would visit her every, you know, at least once a week. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if in being a visitor there to be there to as a, as a visitor, as a comforter, or whatever you want to call that, mm-hmm. are there some general principles of how I would conduct myself as a Buddhist or a practicing Buddhist uh, in my ability to help them to feel comfortable while I'm there visiting them? Yeah, so, you know, I can speak from experience and what I did, you know, like in different people, you know, particularly like my stepfather, when he was dying, he had leukemia and he was in the hospital and he was wanting me to come. So, I went there and I had planned to spend pretty much most of the day and you know I just let him know that you know we kind of like recounted some stories of funny things that happened in our life and different experiences that we had and the some of the struggles and difficulties and some of the jokes and things like this and um, you know letting him know how much I appreciated what he did for me as a stepfather and things like this and then you know as I knew that my visit was going to come to an end and I knew that I wasn't going to be coming back. You know, I talked with him and let him know like, okay, you know, I'm going to 
be leaving soon and I'm not going to be able to come back because I have this company that I was running at the time and had all these obligations, but I cleared my schedule to be able to come here and spend time with you. You know, what else would you like to talk about? You know, what are the things, you know, just kind of like letting him explore in his mind any and all cravings that he might have had associated with me and having conversations with me so he could get to the point where he could let that go. And then, you know, kind of letting him know an hour or two before I was going to leave and then giving him some more time to kind of let it go, to let me go. And then, you know, when I left, it wasn't just like, all right, bye, see you later. You know, I was like, all right, I'm going to leave now. You know, are you ready to let me go? Are you okay with me leaving? And then in his mind, he consciously had to say, yeah, if you need to leave, you know, go ahead and, and go, I understand. And then, you know, I left and then he actually ended up leaving the hospital for a period of time. But then he went right back into the hospital. And then he must have still had some residual craving because he called me and said, hey, are you coming to see me or, or what? And I was like, oh, you know, the, the last time I was there, remember we talked and I share with you that I wasn't going to be coming back anymore because I've got all these obligations with work and it's really difficult for me to get away. There would be a lot of people that I would have to leave, you know, hanging in order to, to come there. You know, I thought that you had, had let me go. Have you let me go? And he's like, well, okay, well, I, I understand. Yeah, I can let you go. And I was like, all right, well, what's going to happen from here? And he said, well, you know, I'd like to see my girlfriend one more time and then I'm going to die after that. So that's actually what happened that night. His girlfriend came and then she visited him and then he died after after that. So the mind was still holding on to me. It was still holding on to his girlfriend and maybe some other things, too. And I don't know if he got to enlightenment at death. I know he wasn't enlightened during his life, but. These are the kind of things that the mind does is it holds on and it's holding on and holding on. So not only spending time and enjoyable time and sharing appreciation, but if you're able to kind of help the person let go of things, this can be really helpful for them. Not necessarily just to comfort them in their life, but also potentially help them to extinguish cravings so that they'll have an improved rebirth or maybe not be reborn at all if they get to enlightenment at death. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so when my grandmother passed away a few years ago, I was studying with a different teacher, and the two things that I got from that was uh, some of the things you said, for instance, um, reminding them of good things that they did, you know, and, 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 uh, and you know, because the, the fact that they're transitioning is scary for many. And so to to be able to give them that. And the other one was to kind of meditate while I was there. In other words, breathing slow or maybe not meditation in its purest form. Um, I have a question though about the first part, which is the reminding them of all the good things that they did. And this is kind of a hypothetical, but I've got actual clients and friends who are struggling with this, that if let's say they have a parent who was a very abusive parent and they're now dying, they're in the hospital, they're in hospice, whatever. And let's just say it's me and I go and I visit my father who was dying. He was very, very abusive toward me. Um, do I just remind him of all the good things he's done or if he brings up the abuse or, or anything like that, or if I'm still holding on to stuff like that, how would I approach that part of it? What you, these unresolved conflicts. Yeah. What you would like to do is resolve all that stuff before someone gets to their deathbed. This is why I teach the contemplation of death, you know, like long before people are starting to get near death in your life, 
you would like to be able to contemplate their death and envision that happening in the mind and then whatever things you need to say to them or whatever things you need to hear from them, you can have those conversations long before that point so that by the time they get to death, there's nothing that you feel like is unsaid or nothing that you needed to hear from that person that was unheard. So like when my stepfather died, I didn't grieve at all because there was nothing that I had unsaid and there was nothing I needed to hear from him because I took care of all of that. And same thing with my mother. When my mother died, I didn't grieve about her death at all because I'd already done all that work to let her go. So what you would like to do is try to deal with all that stuff long before they get to their deathbed. When they're on their deathbed though, sometimes that's the point when they're ready to kind of address any conflict. And what you should really be doing with someone who's dying is kind of let them lead the way because an individual kind of knows what's in their mind and what they need. Like our mother here in Thailand, she was letting us know what she needed in terms of dying at her home and stuff. So this person knows how to navigate their way out of these cravings to a certain degree. So if somebody's telling you that they would like to talk about the conflicts, then talk about it. But I don't necessarily suggest you bringing it up at their deathbed unless they bring it up. I would say focus on the positive things and then whatever wishes that they have, just try to fulfill those. There's some people here in Thailand who talk about hearing the right teachings at the right time. One of the things that they do as people are on their deathbed, and it's very common for people to die at home here in Thailand, that the family will come around, the person will be laying in the living room, you know, everybody knows that they're nearing death in the next two, three, four, five days. And what they'll do is they'll play recordings of the Buddhist teachings. So they have the Buddhist teachings on audiobook, for example, mm-hmm. and they will play it continuously, almost you know, 24 hours a day while this person is in the process of dying. And there's this miracle that occurs when this happens, and people call it a miracle. But what ends up happening is the person's skin turns kind of a hue of yellow, and then the physical body doesn't experience any rigor mortis that they even 10 days later after death because Thai people keep the dead body around for a while before they actually burn it they can open up the casket and the body doesn't have rigor mortis it's still very supple and and moves for somebody who's listened to the Buddhist teachings as they're nearing death so this could be something that you might choose to do is like read these books to them at their deathbed or play some of the audio books that I've, I've written because it's language that they'll understand. And this can be helpful for them to receive those teachings as they're dying. Thank you, Teacher David. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Thank you, Teacher David. That's all the questions at this time. Okay. So there's only one last thing that I have to share with you guys related to death and life and understanding the Buddhist teachings. What I essentially share with you guys is that, you know, this difficult human existence, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, there's the sickness, aging, and death. Yes, there's this, you know, significant discontentedness that is occurring in the unenlightened state. And it can feel quite miserable at times, right? And we just want it to end, but we don't know how in the unenlightened state because we lack the wisdom. 
And it's learning and practicing these teachings that get you to the wisdom that you need in order to end this discontentedness and to end this whole cycle of rebirth. And what I would suggest for you to keep in mind is that no one ever said life would be easy, but it's also not supposed to be tough. Learning Gautama Buddha's teachings is not easy, but learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha will ensure that life is not tough, right? Because life is more tough than it needs to be because of that lack of wisdom. Because of the lack of wisdom of the natural laws of existence, the mind continues to struggle with that craving, anger, and ignorance, and those 10 fetters. The mind just keeps experiencing discontentedness over and over and over again. But as you gradually learn these teachings and you stay dedicated to the practice, then you can get to a point where things are easy in your life. An enlightened being doesn't experience any struggles or any difficulties any longer because their mind has done all that work. So at the point where you feel that the mind is struggling the most, that's where the mind is actually cultivating the most wisdom, or at least has the opportunity to cultivate the most wisdom. If you shrink back from those struggles and you turn away and you run away from the struggles, then you're ensuring that this situation is going to occur over and over and over again. This is the cycle of rebirth that you're going to just keep experiencing it, not only in this life, that same situation reoccurring over and over because life is so tough, but in future lives, it's going to be experienced as well. So when you're experiencing that toughness, when you're experiencing that difficulty in those struggles, some of the teachings that the Buddha shares is he says, don't shrink back from the struggle. The reason why is because if you shrink back from the struggle, you're not going to cultivate the wisdom that you need in order to ensure that that struggle doesn't occur again. Instead, if you run away from the struggle, you're ensuring that it is going to happen again because you haven't cultivated the wisdom that you need. So what I suggest you do is that you turn around and walk towards the struggle. You walk towards the challenge. And you reach out to people that you need help from in order to cultivate the wisdom to overcome that challenge. And that's where a teacher can help you to overcome those challenges. And then when you cultivate the wisdom that you needed about that specific challenge, then you won't experience it any longer in this life or any future life because you've cultivated the wisdom that you need. So each time you encounter a different struggle, the first time you might only acquire 10, 20, 30% of what you need wisdom wise about that particular struggle. But then each time the struggle is a little bit less and a little bit less on that particular topic. And you can reach out for help and guidance and all the different ways that I share with you that you can reach out for help. But if you shrink back from the struggle, again, you're ensuring that it's going to continue to happen and that wouldn't be wise. And that's why life is so tough because the mind just doesn't have wisdom. It's not that you're a bad person. It's not that the people around you are bad people. It's just that people lack wisdom of these natural laws of existence. And when you learn and you practice the teachings, then you can cultivate this wisdom of how to eliminate craving and anger in those 10 fetters. Because as you cultivate that wisdom, then life is so fulfilling and so enjoyable that you're never experiencing any anger or frustration or any of those other discontent feelings ever again because you understand why all these things are happening around you. Remember, as I share, that it's a real struggle to exist in a world that you don't understand. 
just like when we were children and we had that natural law of gravity that we didn't understand. It was so difficult for us to fall down and hit our knees and hit our elbows. We would get bloody elbows. We would fall off of our bicycle and we would cry. We would knock over glasses and break things and we would be upset and our toys would break and we would be upset. But slowly but surely, we gained wisdom about this natural law of gravity to the point where now we understand it because we've awakened to this natural law of gravity. We've gained this wisdom that now we can make wiser decisions about the natural law of gravity to the point where we can travel all around the world. We no longer need to be confined with our mom and dad who kind of protect us and look out for us a little bit. But instead, we can now roam the world and travel all over the world because we have the wisdom of this natural law of gravity. We've awakened to that natural law. And the same thing needs to occur with all these other natural laws that the Buddha taught. As long as we're lacking the wisdom, then we're going to have difficulties and struggle just like we did with the natural law of gravity. But when we cultivate the wisdom through independent verification of the truth and seeing that these teachings are indeed the truth, then you can make wiser decisions and you'll understand why you experience sickness. When the body's sick, it's like, all right, well, the body's sick. It's impermanent. It's going to get better. And yeah, I can't go out there and do the things that I used to do in the world. But you know what? Let me just do a really good job at being sick, right? That's what I think is like, whatever I'm going to do, let me just do it as a really good job, right? So if I'm going to be sick, let me just do a really good job of it. Let me just eat food. Let me just lay in bed. Let me do whatever I need to do to just lay here and be sick, right? So you understand why you're sick and that it's impermanent and this physical body is going to experience sickness. And yeah, for the next three days or five days or 10 days or whatever, you can't go outside and do the things that you normally would do. But that's impermanent. Eventually, you'll get back to the point where you can go do those things. And the same thing with aging, that as we age, you know, just do it really well. If you have gray hair, let it be gray. You know, if you've got wrinkles, it's like, wow, look at that beautiful wrinkle. That's amazing. If you're feeling a little bit older and you have trouble moving around, okay, well, of course, because this body's been in existence for a certain period of time, those things are all completely normal. So that way, by the time you get to death, you'll completely understand it, that that's part of the whole thing. So as long as we are complacent and we're lacking the wisdom of these natural laws and all their totality and the complete comprehensive approach to getting to enlightenment, we will continue to struggle with sickness, aging, and death, and it will be a difficult human existence. But as you gradually cultivate the wisdom and you gradually practice it, you get to a point where it's effortless. Going from unenlightened to enlightenment, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of challenge. You'll meet certain struggles. But if you step up to those struggles and get to the other side of them, eventually you get to the point where it's effortless, where you're just always mindful. You always have concentration. You always are practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. You never experience anger. But the only way that you get to those things is that you need to go through that struggle. The way that I think about it is I think about it as you have to kind of walk through the fire in order to get to the other side and appreciate the fresh air. So you kind of have to walk through this fire and, and feel kind of enough misery in life that you're motivated to get out of this fire so that you can get on the other side of it and appreciate the fresh air. And that's going to take some real work to do that, right? So 
understand that this is a journey that it takes time it's not an instantaneous fix but as you gradually cultivate the wisdom little by little class by class chapter by chapter book by book conversation by conversation experience by experience situation by situation you gradually cultivate more and more wisdom and you start to appreciate and value the wisdom you know oftentimes in western culture we don't value wisdom in fact we kind of degrade teachers in some western cultures and we look down on them and we treat them poorly but what you see here in thailand is that they actually really respect wisdom they really respect teachers people who are willing to share wisdom and share that with other people they really respect that highly because they understand that this life is all about cultivating wisdom so if you get to the point where you have a real appetite for cultivating wisdom you really gravitate towards it you have an appreciation for wisdom then you can see that you can accumulate wisdom and you can acquire wisdom in so many different ways in the buddhist teachings is just one aspect of wisdom that you're going to need in this life in order to get to enlightenment but there's a lot of other wisdom out there in the world too that if you develop this kind of life practice of cultivating wisdom as it relates to the buddhist teachings then as you do that more and more and you learn how to learn you learn how to reflect and you learn how to practice you can then apply those same skills to other areas of your life no matter what it is that you're looking to do if you're trying to learn a new skill or develop a new career or you're a new parent and you are interested in learning how to be a better parent always looking for how to cultivate wisdom this is what's going to ensure that life is not tough it's not easy to cultivate wisdom because you have to do work and you have to be sure that the mind is not complacent. But if you can get to a point where you take joy in the cultivation of wisdom and you really appreciate the cultivation of wisdom, then it becomes easier and easier because it doesn't feel like work. And then as you're doing that little bit of work and each day you're doing a little bit of work to cultivate more and more wisdom, when you get those golden nuggets of wisdom that you've learned, you really appreciate it because you worked for it. So understand that this life, it's only difficult human existence because we make it difficult. Because of the craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, because of the lack of wisdom, we make it a difficult human existence. But it doesn't need to be. As we cultivate more and more wisdom, we can get to the point where life is just so easy. There's inner fulfillment and everything in life is just completely at ease and the mind is peaceful and joyful there's never a time as an enlightened being where you'll ever experience discontentedness or difficulties ever again life will just be so seamless for you and so so fluid so let me see what maybe remaining questions you guys might have on anything that i've just shared or anything that we've talked about in the class and if you have other questions related to any aspect of the path to enlightenment you're welcome to ask those through facebook youtube or zoom or raise your hand in zoom to ask any questions that you like there doesn't seem to be any more questions you all right well i will just say goodbye to all of you guys and thank you for attending today's class and learning and continuing to learn and reach out whenever you guys need help and I'll just remind you of what our classes are coming up. 
This Wednesday, we're going to be coming together in the group learning program to do meditation together. We're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. So if you'd like to kind of have some encouragement, some support and motivation in your meditation practice, you can come together on Wednesday at the same time in order to do that and also to encourage, support and motivate each other in your meditation practice. And then I open up to any and all questions that you guys might have related to the path to enlightenment. And then next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 20 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This chapter is titled Animal to Human, The Evolution of Our Consciousness. This is where I'm going to help you guys see these animalistic instincts that are very common in the unenlightened mind and how you've evolved from these countless animal existences into this human existence. But now, even though you're in this human existence, the unenlightened mind functions very much like an animal. And the more that you understand that, you can kind of observe those aspects of the mind when they're happening. Because part of what this path to enlightenment is, is yes, it's a purification of the mind in order to eliminate the conditions that are causing discontentedness. And as part of that, what you're doing is you're becoming a better and better human being, essentially. You're functioning more and more as a human being. This is why when you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you're reborn back into the human world because you've become more and more like a human, where when we're not in that first stage of enlightenment, we're reborn into the lower realms, into hell, animal realm, or afflicted spirits. So the more and more human you become, the more and more you're getting closer and closer to enlightenment. So being able to identify these animalistic instincts and how we evolve from animal to human will really help you to identify your own characteristics that are kind of more like an animal. Because when we are having craving and we you know want things to be a certain way and then we don't get that you know we you know we kind of talk strong or aggressive or we're bitter you know this is like an animal roaring and kind of trying to fear the other animals into doing things our way that's what we did in our animal existences and that's why we still do it in the human existence as an unenlightened being because we're functioning very much like an animal. So we'll go through all of that and I'll share that with you on Sunday. And you can read the book because the book has a lot more detail than what I'll be able to explain in the class. So you have the meditation class on Wednesday and our talk on Sunday that you're welcome to join. And then, of course, on Saturdays, we do the Polycanon and English Study Group. We're in volume 11 now, chapters 111 through 120. So you're welcome to join that if you like. And both of these chapters, by the way, or, or this chapter in uh, the book that we're in, in the group learning program, in that book, volume 11, it's all about the cycle of rebirth. So as you guys probably know, when you're first starting to learn, I usually suggest for people to postpone any investigation of the cycle of rebirth until later, after you have more of the foundation of the Buddhist teachings under your belt before you actually approach the cycle of rebirth. So in this first book, volume one, this is kind of like the first place where I start introducing you a bit to the cycle of rebirth and helping you see the connections between your human existence now to the animalistic tendencies and instincts and existences that we've had in the past. So you should think about reading that chapter before class and or after class to help you to understand a bit of that. So I'll see you guys in perhaps one of these future classes. 
Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sabadija. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.